Hey y'all, producer Drew here. Full disclosure, today's guest I've known since he took a job in visitor services at the museum way back in 2016. He and I immediately hit it off because of a string of common interests in art, photography, pop culture, you name it. And so when I heard he was going to be in the CMA's newest exhibition, 22 South Carolinians, I just knew I had to get him on the show. I was happy to get him to come in and do our opening segment, but his story was way too interesting to stuff into the first minute and a half of a regular episode. So I'm bringing you an extended interview between him and myself, just for fun, see if you can count how many times I say like during the recording, then imagine how many of those I cut out. I am so excited because not only do I never get to do interviews, but I get to interview a good friend of mine who I've known for years. <laughs> you are in for a treat today. This guy is awesome. And you're going to really love listening to him tell his story and talk about his work, which is really unique to the museum and something we haven't been able to see a lot of in the past. So I really want to just jump right into it and introduce my good friend here. His name is Isaac Udogu. And he is a multimedia artist of all types. Uh, Isaac, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Isaac Udogu. I am a Nigerian-born digital artist and martial artist. I love what I do. And it's just a treat to be able to do this with the good friend, Drew. I mean, this guy's shown me a lot, taught me a lot of things. And to be able to collaborate as we are doing now is very exciting for me. Isaac. I'm just going to jump right into it. I mean, you were just talking about you're, you're Nigerian born and you now live here in like South Carolina. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that transition. Well, uh, when did you move here? How long have you been here? What's life like for you here? Yeah. So I was brought to the United States when I was about nine months old. First state we were living in with my mother and father was Colorado, Denver, more specifically. From Denver, we moved to North Carolina and from North Carolina, we moved to Augusta. And then from Augusta to South Carolina. So most of my uh, upbringing has been in the South. I've been in South Carolina for over 20 years now. Um, this is my home. I am Columbia through and through. There's no other state that I have a connection to like this one. From my girlfriend, Kayla, she has family in Charleston. Um, whenever I go to Charleston, I feel like it's home as well. From a historical sense, being West African and specifically uh, Igbo Nigerian, there's a lot of roots there as well. You look at a lot of famous black actors and musicians and politicians, they all have roots in South Carolina, some way, shape or form. I mean, Charleston was the, uh, the hub of slave trade. So it makes complete sense. Um, South Carolina has really strong black roots and it's something to be very aware of. Um, my only ties here is me living here, really. Um, I may have descendants or um, ancestors that have been here, but they weren't directly tied to me. So as a Nigerian born kid, growing up here, it felt normal. It felt like home. I've seen differences. That's because I was raised in a Nigerian home, but my environment was very black Southern American and it always made sense. There's so many similarities between West African and black Southern American culture from the food that we eat, the music that we listen to, the superstitions that we believe in are very, very kindred, you know? A lot of my life was spent in the low country of South Carolina yeah. and the superstition is real, right? right. Like it's uh, <laughs> baked into daily life. So, I mean, you were talking about growing up in like a West African household, but mm -hmm. then like growing up 
in the South. When you went home, mm. what was that like versus like when you went to school? All right. So um, my mother spoke Igbo. She didn't, I didn't, I don't speak Igbo myself, but my siblings, my older siblings understand it. Me and my younger brother did not have the opportunity to learn it. And certain phrases or things like, uh, say for instance, the Igbo word for a living room would be palo. Um, I would say these to my friends outside. They would be very confused when I'm saying, hey, y'all, let's go hang out in the Palo. They'll be like, what is that? I was like, oh, sorry, the living room. Small nuances like that is what reminded me that there are differences between my household and my friends' households. But um, the religious aspects, church and um, other things are very similar. It's like, okay, I grew up in a Protestant household and my mother was raised Catholic and my father was Protestant. I go to my friends' churches. The, the devotion to religion and spirituality is very much the same. When I went back to Nigeria back in 2016, people always joke about how the black church has the longest church service in the South, right? Uh, three to four hours long. It was a mirror in Nigeria. It was the same. There was so many things going on. It was just, you would think church is over, but the organs will start playing again. It's very small nuances when it comes to the differences. Culturally, the ideology is, is, is different, I would say. Um, the way we view each other, but we're more or less the same in a lot of aspects. I mean, when we step outside, I'm a black man in this country, in this state, in this city. If somebody was to see me out walking down the street, they're not going to say, oh, that's a Nigerian man. No, the first thing they're not going to, you have to get to know me to know that I'm Nigerian. Yeah, here I'm black. Back home, I'm just a man, you know? Mm. Uh, there's no differentiating in color or anything like that. Back home, I'll be just a man, which is a very interesting thing to think about. Yeah. <laughs> and that was um, being down here where South Carolina is like 50-50, white or black, and then everybody else. It was very interesting. I was like, I've never seen so many people look like me in one space. And when I came back to the States after spending a month and a half in Nigeria, it was jarring to see um, so many different people who didn't look like me. But it just reminded me. A lot of people's realities are very different from what I grew up and experienced. Like somebody in Wyoming has a completely different experience than I have here. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's like really interesting because I think we, especially in this country, but I mean, probably anywhere, right? Like right, we, right. we always want to universalize experiences, mm -hmm. right? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And mm -hmm. like, we want to make it this like monolithic thing that it's just one thing, but it's not, it's not right? It's like very... everybody's having their own individual life. Right, right. And it's interesting. When we get into consciousness and um, I would say uh, connective consciousness, you know, this is something that shows up in, in my work a lot. Right now I have showing here at the museum, God Beholds God and a piece called Respect Your Higher Self. Those two pieces came to me while I was reading a book. I have it we're here with me, actually. The plan, the plan of creation in African tradition, more specifically the Igbo example, um, the author speaks of this collective consciousness and how everything is connected and how the macrocosm and the microcosm, the macrocosm being the universe or God and the microcosm being humankind are essentially mirrors of each other. And it's interesting seeing this collective consciousness be experienced so many different realities within itself. So is the people in Wyoming, the people in, in Ghana or Nigeria or in the UK, all the way in South Carolina, they have all these different experiences all happening at the same time, but they are of one consciousness, you know, of this one same universe. They are all connected to, I say, 
this one tree, this one large tree with a bunch of different branches experiencing different things, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think saying it with different language, but I mean, this is exactly what they talk about in quantum physics, right? Yes. It's, it's the exact, and that to me is like really fascinating because like, when was this originally written? He originally wrote this in 2015. He wrote it in 2015, but these are ideas that have been like circulating and spreading. For years, for years. And it's very interesting. We look at the Bible, we look at the Kabbalah, or we look at so many different um, old religious texts. They all speak to the same thing. Genesis, uh, God creates man in his image. That is the same exact thing I was just saying earlier as we are a mirror of the universe, which is in this case, God, right? So God creating us in their image is showing us that we are essentially the same. We matter can't be created nor destroyed when it comes to science. Science is age old. Um, math as well. These things are scientifically proven. You can't create nor destroy matter or energy. So it's always been here. The room that we're sitting in is of the same essence that we are. It has same amount of consciousness as we do because you can't create nor destroy it. This feels like a really uh, great segue. Yeah. And the fact that we're talking about matter, we're talking about physical objects, but the work that you've provided. Yeah. Is not physical, right? right? It's digital. This is, this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about because I think this is a huge barrier between like the traditional mm-hmm. art viewer and like maybe the contemporary art viewer right. that like they're yeah. like, well, like, what is the item? You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. or, or they think, oh, well, you made that in a computer. It must have been really easy. And they right. don't understand the technical knowledge it takes to just make a very simple, like four to five second clip, you know? Right, so it's right, like, right, right. can you talk to me a little bit about like digital art, kind of what got you into it, what you've learned in the process of mm-hmm. doing it, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I started out as a traditional artist uh, with illustration and drawing, some painting. Digital art has always been something I wanted to um, explore especially animation. I am a kid who was put in front of the TV watching all of my favorite shows. And I just wanted to make those shows and be in those shows or be the characters in those shows. So digital art was like an obvious thing for me to uh, go into as a creator. So my main mediums are 3D art, where I use different 3D softwares, create uh, an image or an animation to tell a story. So it's interesting because uh, digital art is starting to gain a lot of notice as of um, the rise of NFTs and non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrency and different digital assets as of 2020 or 2021 now really is when it really blew up and started to become more on everybody's radar. And it's interesting because you look at an image on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you're like, okay, this person made a digital image what goes into that you can just piece together certain things and boom you have your image you press the button on the computer and boom there you go right but that's not the case for a lot of people myself in particular um there's a lot that goes into it so i use five or six different softwares to create one single image or animation that could be five seconds to 15 seconds long and the time it takes for me to do that is about the same time it takes for a traditional artist to create a piece. Same process goes into it. Usually I start out with sketches and brainstorming. If I'm doing an animation, I would do a storyboard and sketch out all the scenes that I want to and put together a mood board or look at different images of what I want to use for the inspiration. 
I would start out sketching out and um, building up and taking it to my computer and then sketching some more <laughs> with my uh, tablet to draw out these scenes to smooth out the rough sketch. From there, I'll begin to build it in a software called Cinema 4D, which is a 3D modeling, designing, animation, and et cetera, um, program that you can just essentially build entire worlds with this program. ZBrush is another um, 3D modeling software where I sculpt like a traditional uh, artist would sculpt with clay, but it's digital. I will still have to do all the same smoothing and carving and um, clay buildup that you would in the real world. As I continue, I usually work with figures. So when I'm working with figures, I have another software called Dash Studio, where I get these characters imported and I add my own touches to them. I texture the skin like I go in and do all that detail. So if you look at my work, you'll see a lot of detail in the skin or the eyes or um, the hair or, or um, some of the um, jewelry that I create. I'll start to build these um, things and texture it. So I'll go in and do almost every detail. And if it's taking too long, I'll find a way to um, speed up the process. And from there, I'll take it to another 3D software called Marvelous Designer, where I'll build the clothes. And to learn this software, I had to learn how clothing is made and put together like pattern designs and how to create an inseam of a pants leg, you know, like I had to learn the measurements and everything. It's like I'm learning how to be a fashion designer just simply because I want to create a certain look for my things. You know, like there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of reading as well, because I like my work to have meaning and to tell stories. I want to give knowledge to people that I'm receiving as well, but I like them to have some real meaning to it. You know, I, I want it to stop you in your tracks and you look at it and like, wait, what does this mean? You know, like my entire goal with the work that I do is to create a world for black people around the world of all the diaspora to have an escape, to feel where they can have a sense of normalcy, where they can just live and exist and just be. And when I say just be, I mean, just exist as humans, not even to have a label placed on you or anything like that, where you don't have that outside pressure of making sure you're respectable or have your hair a certain way or anything where you're just being human, you know, just living your life <laughs> for real. And I like to put that into the future because growing up, watching sci-fi and all kinds of things, you don't see a lot of black people in the future. And if you do, you see them with cyber augmentations, subhuman characteristics, or their or their features are replaced with alien features or something like that. Like, look at Predator um, from Alien vs. Predator. He's like a tribal hunter with dreadlocks. I mean, the image is right there of what you see. How um, a lot of media and other um, spaces see black people as, you know, and I want to create spaces where we can just be human, you know. You know, it's so this is a little bit of an aside, but it's like really interesting that you bring up that specific aspect of like science fiction yeah. and its relationship with like black entities and black people, because right. you're completely right. You know, something I think about a lot is like how many impactful characters were voiced by black men, but played by white men. Right. Like, right? I mean, Darth, Darth Vader, Vader. <laughs> or or uh, for the anime nerds at home, Cowboy Bebop's Jet is right. a black man. He has a black voice. Right. 
but he is definitely portrayed wow. as a white man. Right. right? And they like, just recently fixed that in the new animation that they have now. Um, this is not an endorsement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely not, because I've not heard some great things about that. Right, right. But the term Afrofuturism gets thrown around a lot. Right. Right. Like, and I mean, I know some artists really embrace it and some artists mm-hmm. are like, oh, like, don't call me that. Right, you know, right, what, right, where, right. where's your relationship with that? How do you feel about I that? I will tell you, I am an Afrofuturist, full and full. My friend Cedric Omoja, he he peeped me to this game of what Afrofuturism is to him. And I feel like it's the same for me. Black people simply existing in the future, as I said before, where we, we were just alive, you know, where we see ourselves not in the future a lot in a lot of things. And we see it not in just media, but in real life where we have all these things, all these systems put in place to not have it succeed and exist in the future. You know, incarceration rates, murder rates, um, police brutality, redlining in, in neighborhoods and all kinds of things. Things just not to let us succeed and see ourselves in the future where it's very apparent and it, it's been going on for years. I mean, it's mind boggling to see how real it is, like when the system does what the system does. You know, I'm never surprised, but I'm always uh, I'm just like, wow, it's, it's really true every single time. That's why I make the work that I make. I make my work for black people to to be reassured that somebody is out here thinking about you. We are worth it. There is value to our lives, whether you know it or not. I don't like really creating pieces out of pain or um, suffering. I think we have enough of that. And I think that art is not for us anymore. Some people needed that to realize what was going on. But I don't think that art is for a black person's soul anymore because there's enough pain or hurt now. So I like to create work that uplifts us in in a way to remind us that God is within all of us. Hey, y'all, you know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know, more? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website. www.columbiamuseum.org And now, for more of the show. There is definitely like some hard-baked spiritualism into the work that you do. I mean, just the work that we have on display here. I mean, it definitely has this very ethereal quality. Yeah. It feels almost like you're like witnessing like this religious experience. Weird transition. But speaking of ethereal, I am now thinking about Ethereum. And like, <laughs> yeah, wh- I want to kind of go back to something we were talking about a moment ago yeah, and when you had mentioned NFTs. I feel like I am pretty technologically savvy and I still get confused by some of like the technical terms of like how a non fungible token works. Yeah. I would love from your perspective, because you have Found a lot of success yeah. and like notoriety through doing this work. Can you like talk a little bit about your relationship with that and like maybe a little bit about what it even is? Yeah. So NFTs is an acronym for non-fungible token. Um, a non-fungible token essentially is, say for instance, Drew hands me a cup. He says, this is your cup and I trade him a piece of corn, right? 
both of us agree this is something of equal value, but they are not tradable. Say I give you a dollar and I give you four quarters. Those will be exchanged as the same. Those are equal to the same thing. But the coffee cup and the piece of corn are not interchangeable in that way. That is something that we agree on. So in the sense of NFTs and digital assets, I create work where a person can buy it with real money or Ethereum, which is a cryptocurrency. What happens with that is you have a digital signature of the original creator of this asset and you can legitimately own that asset once it's purchased. So you know it's authentic, you know it's a, a real thing from this one person because you have their digital signature, very similar to how you will buy a painting with the artist's signature on it. Like, you know, you can have it um, appraised and see all these things, the same way you'll do in the traditional art world. Or yeah. like a certificate of authenticity. Oh, yes. So my work is very, is digital, as I said before. So if I was to print my work, right? And I've already sold it as an NFT. The person who holds the NFT has a certificate of authenticity. They have that signature on the blockchain. But I can still sell the work as a print, but those prints really don't have any value to the sense of uh, what the person already purchased. I have the kiss on a pair of socks, you know, and I can't resell those socks for the same price that the, the kiss would go for, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, a lot of people joke around about it. Right click save, which means you can just take a screenshot of the digital asset, but um, it would hold no value because you don't have that digital signature. You don't have that certificate of authenticity, it becomes a very real thing once you put it on the blockchain, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, um, do you think that this has allowed you to have like a little bit more freedom and like how and what you can distribute out to the public? Definitely. Before NFTs, I relied solely on commissions to um, make income. And the value of my work was the equivalent of how many likes I got on a post or on Instagram or Twitter or how many people have seen this. NFTs add real value to digital work now. And that's not just for digital artists. Traditional artists are using NFTs to um, sell their physical works as well. These things can be paired. Say, for instance, somebody buys the NFT of your painting, you can have that painting sold with that NFT. And the art world is taking notice. Christie's and Sotheby's, they're pushing a lot of artists. And it's great to see that digital artists are finally being taken seriously. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, proof of concept right here, right? I yeah. mean, like <laughs> this year alone, how many shows have you been in this year? Right. This year alone has been the most shows I've ever been in attendance to or exhibited in. Just in this last quarter of the year, locally, this is my first time showing this many shows. I was able to show at 701's um, biannual show and this show at the Community Museum of Art, 22 South Carolinians, you know, those shows probably mean the most to me because I've lived in this state for a long time. I've worked at Community Museum of Art for two and a half years. I've did volunteering and setups and art handling at 701 for so many years. And to finally have work in those shows means the most to me, honestly. Isaac, I do want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. I know we're like running short on time, oh, no worries. but we've been talking about like your art this whole time and you are taking like elements of all these things you've learned in all the different art firms that you've worked in and they've kind of synergistically come to a point, right, with the work that we're now seeing you right. uh, make. But there is one other art form that you do that maybe is a little bit more to the side, <laughs> but is very much a part of your life. 
And that is that you're a martial artist, yes. which it's got art in the name. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that's like so fascinating. Can you talk a bit, a bit about martial arts, like kind of how you got into that? Yeah. And does that ever bleed over into some of the work that you do? Oh, yes, definitely. For sure. I've taken martial arts serious when I was 16. Um, my older brother was living in Florida at the time. He came back home to visit and he said, hey, I got some things to teach you. So he taught me how to punch and kick. And that was it. He left me with that. And from 16 all the way to about 20, I just worked on those things, those very same techniques he showed me. What sparked my interest in martial arts has been the things that I've watched, very similar to with my art. Art and martial arts, they're hand in hand for me. I can't separate the two. You'll see it show up in my work, a lot of Japanese-inspired work, a lot of clothing, things of that matter, or ninjas or um, samurais and giant super titans type of things you'll see in my work. But martial arts has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I've always remembered uh, watching the three ninjas with my brothers and Power Rangers and X-Men and all kinds of things. And it just bleeds into my everyday life. I, <laughs> my girlfriend would, would joke around and tell me, you better watch out. Isaac's over there practicing his, uh, his, his moves right now in the, in the living room or in the kitchen or in the bathrooms, anywhere I can. I'm always working on my techniques and it bleeds into my work where I see movement and other things that I find very fascinating what the human body can do. And I like to try to translate that or find a way to put that into my work because as humans, we have so many things that we can do. There's so many things to explore about ourselves. Not even just in a, um, a spiritual or mental realm, physical realm as well, just the feats that we can do, the things that we, the boundaries that we can push as humans is, it's incredible. And I like to put that into my work where we see people being superhuman, but really it's just another part of being human, you know? That's how I got into martial arts, just watching cool fights and things like that on TV. Power Rangers was a staple. I would say probably the, the first thing that really made me want to be a martial artist. I wanted to be a Power Ranger. I wanted to be a superhero, you know, and I want to create superheroes. And that's how uh, the martial arts and the art come together. I started competing in martial arts when I was 20. 2014 is when I had my first fight. December 6th is the very first kickboxing competition I competed in, a full contact competition. I won the fight with 11 seconds left. And it was probably <laughs> the most frightening experience I've ever had. I used to play football in high school and it's the first time where I felt I had to be defensive and offensive at all times. Football, you have a point where you're offensive and a point where you're defensive. But in fighting and martial arts, you're balancing between the two at all times. And it's just finding that middle path, like Buddhists say, you really have to find that path and that's how you succeed. Because if you're one thing all the time, you won't win. You can't win. You might get lucky, but it's not going to last forever. So when you find that middle path and when you can find that balance, whether it's in life or anything, you really start to find success and find more about yourself. I learned a lot about myself through fighting and things that I like and what I don't like about myself through fighting. Mm. You know, it, it exposes a lot. Sharing a ring or a cage with another individual, you learn a lot about that person as well. You speak an unspoken language with each other. You see when a person's fatigued, they don't even have to tell you they're tired. You can see when somebody's gaining confidence or losing confidence. You can see when a person is broken or when they're, they're, they're resolute, like their mind is as strong and fortified as a castle. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, that conversation between two people 
you feel connected to that person, just like that collective consciousness I was speaking to earlier, you go into a Zen state when you're really in the flow of it. And when you're sharing that with another person, it's the grounding experience, you know? In my first fight, after everything was all said and done, me and this person embraced each other and we hugged, we thanked each other because it was like, thank you for liberating me in this sense, you know? Like you brought me here, I brought you here, we're here together. Yeah, we just beat the mess out of each other for like 10 minutes, but it was something beautiful about it. We really carved away whatever ego we had in that moment and to shed that and to be conscious in that moment it was a very beautiful thing so far i've had about four kickboxing matches and uh my most recent fight was in, in april of this year it was the first time i had a fight in five years i lost the match through split decision but it was a very interesting time during that fight leading up to it me and my girlfriend are taking care of our triplet daughters and we are bouncing between getting them to school and then from school I'm going to training and then from training I'm working and she's working full time and it's like okay just trying to find that balance in life you know to find that middle path and it was very interesting because that's the first time I really had to do this and for this fight I felt so calm and so conscious and so aware of everything I was very present during the fight I can hear my girlfriend screaming, my mom screaming, my siblings screaming, and I can hear my coaches. Um, we were in Myrtle Beach. I can even smell the water as we were doing these things. I was very present and I was in the eye of, of the tornado, you know, in a sense, or eye of the hurricane. Um, I was very still in, in the midst of all the chaos and I was watching myself do all these things. I'm watching my opponent come at me with everything he has. And I'm like, oh, this is happening for real. Okay, this is um, very interesting. It's very much like when I'm working and I'm in the flow of creating, you know? I go into a space where I'm essentially just watching myself do these things. And it's very hard to break me out of that um, sometimes. And if you pair that with ADHD, it's very hard to, <laughs> it's very hard to break my concentration with that because I get hyper-focused on something. Well, you know, one thing that I really pulled from that that I thought really is like so perfect full circle is you're you're talking about this like unspoken language between you and like mm -hmm. this other fighter mm -hmm. and the unspoken language comes out in your work at least in my opinion all mm -hmm. the time you right. know what i mean like these scenes are mysterious mm -hmm. you don't have all the context right like this may be something that you're seeing from an outside perspective mm -hmm. or maybe this is something that you understand holistically because it's like speaking to you on like a spiritual unspoken level. And, and I know it's ironic to talk about <laughs> unspoken language on a podcast. Right, right, right. But like, I do think that is like a really interesting dynamic of your work and something that keeps bringing me back. Mm -hmm. You know, when I see it, I recently have pretty much given up social media, but I'll still try to find time to come back and log on to see what <laughs> Isaac's up to. And everyone here should I appreciate too. That. I appreciate you know, that. um, Isaac, before we head off, is uh, what do you got coming up? What you got going on? I'm working on um, some short films I've been trying to flesh out for the last two, three years now. I've created a, um, a piece called Black Boy Meets World um, a couple of years ago for a, a local film festival. And I want to revisit that. And the way I want to approach it now is with the knowledge that I have gained over this past couple of years since creating that piece is continue to bring it to the pinnacle of what it, I believe it should be. And I'm working on a couple other things right now. I'm working on some NFTs um, for um, charities. 
one more specifically for um, Haiti Relief. I have this show going on currently at the Columbia Museum of Art all the way until May 22nd, which I'm very excited to be a part of. It's my longest running show, and it's a very beautiful show with a lot of my friends in it. But yeah, the future is bright. It's beautiful. The present is amazing. And I can't wait to bring all those things together. 22 South Carolina is on view through May 22, 2022. Uh, and this has been Isaac. Thank you so, so, so much for popping into the closet day and hanging out with me. I cannot wait to see what you're going to be doing next. And frankly, everyone listening here should be checking him out and keeping an eye on this guy because he's going places and he's going to be a really big deal very, very soon and already kind of is. So <laughs> you, I do yeah. want to say one more thing, please. The roots that I have in South Carolina, Columbia more specifically, it's, it's very important for me. It influences my work a lot. That Southern this, you know, like that ease. I want people to feel that same thing, you know, and um, South Carolina means a lot to me. And to be in these shows, as I said before, it means a lot. And I really appreciate I, I've been t I was telling my girlfriend how how bad I wanted to have more local shows. I want to have more local presence because I, I see what's happening on the uh, Internet and digital space. But I want people to know that I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. You've been listening to Binder, a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, the good friend Drew. Special assistance provided by Joelle Ryan Cook. For more information about Binder, CMA exhibitions, and programs, visit our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. Did you count how many times I said like? <laughs>